Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. You're with Joe, Rowe, and Vanessa tonight. Uh, hello, how are you? Good evening. Hello. Good to have you here. It's all warm and sultry out there. And uh, we hope that you're all comfortable and, you know, maybe heading home, getting a little bit of sun. Tonight we're going to explore um, a few serious topics uh, like the DNA phenotyping technology that's emerging um, in use in China. Plus, we're also going to have a bit more of a lighthearted wrap of some of the games that Adam Christou, the Breakfasters game reviewer, has loved this year. Uh, before we get to that, we're going to cover a bit of news. So the Saturday paper had a particularly great write-up of the current state of the robo-debt issue. So robo-debt is Centrelink's automated payment notices scheme where it was trying to recoup any um, overpayments from people who'd been on things like the New Start Allowance. And the government has realised that the way that they took in ATO data and applied it to Centrelink users um, with, you know, a lot of inaccuracy in terms of the calculations and the averaging over time um, was poorly done. It's well worth reading the Saturday Papers article about it. Um, What has happened since is that a whole lot of people have challenged the debt notices that had come through to them from from the government and they haven't been having a great experience once again in terms of being being sort of directed to kind of restart the whole process and have things reanalyzed and um, the Saturday paper does go into quite a lot of detail about the emotional and financial toll that this scheme and its poor deployment has had on people. Um, so I'm really hoping that uh, that gets cleared up soon. There was some great commentary also on thesizzle.com.au, which is a subscription-based newsletter um, by a local Aussie tech guy who we you know, really rate his work there. So it's an Aussie digest of tech news and bargains. It's curated for you every afternoon. I wanted to give them a shout out because, you know, often looking for very Australian specific technology based news, um, we like looking at the sizzle and, you know, shout outs to them. They're they're a great uh, newsletter product. So that's cool. Uh, what else is happening in the news, Ro? Oh, there's just so much happening. So um, Amazon, uh, the, you know, the Everywhere at all times, a mega mega company has um, made quite a few announcements this week. So um, it's had its AWS reinvent 2019 conference on Monday, which is where a lot of these announcements have been coming out. And those who are into their quantum good things, um, Amazon has launched Braket, which is essentially um, the launch of their quantum cloud computing platform. Now, Amazon has had a really, really successful business division in its cloud hosting and those other associated products. So it's definitely reaching the little paws out um, you know, even further. Um, I never pictured Amazon as a wildcat before, but I am now. It's, yeah, definitely get, getting its uh, its paws into everything. So, um, you know, quantum computers are now a real thing and they can perform computations, although not particularly well. It's still pretty simple. But essentially, companies are now introducing platforms where scientists and researchers and other very interested parties can actually experiment. So Amazon's system called Bracket will actually provide access to three really well-known quantum devices from IonQ, Rigetti and D-Wave. So they're not super, super useful just yet, unless you think generating certifiable random numbers are useful Um, but you know it's a really big step and it's a big mass market step forward for people that are wanting to play in the space which is really exciting. So to try and give our listeners a bit of a sense of Mm. you know who is the 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 customer for Amazon's products in this space. What are you thinking? It's it's going to be incredibly niche. It's going to be really niche. So it's going to be things like, you know, universities, scientists, heavy-duty researchers. Financial products. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's going to be very, very specific. Mm. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, and I 
wonder if anyone has um, been noticing, it can be a little tedious following sometimes the things going on in Parliament, but there have been major amendments to the encryption laws proposed at the moment. So uh, human rights organisations, the telecommunications industry and a range of technology companies have provided comments on these proposed amendments to the telecommunications and other legislation amendment assistant sorry, in brackets, Assistance and Access Act 2018. And this was tabled today in the Senate by Senator Christina Keneally. So to quote a little bit about what's going on here, the bill proposes several key alterations to the TOLA Act, which follow the bipartisan recommendations that emerged from the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security Inquiry earlier this year. Now on BITE, we did talk about that as it was going on, and there were several prominent... um, privacy and technology commentators and academics who um, gave really powerful statements to that joint committee. Um, They included Dr. Sulet Dreyfus, who's been a a guest on the show before and is an academic at Melbourne University, well worth reading on this particular issue. Also the um, Electronic Frontier Association Australia. Um, So the, uh, the vice president of the Queensland Council for Civil Liberties and the chair of EFA's policy committee, Angus Murray, had this to say, that um, Labor's proposed amendments to the Toller Act are positive. However, the context of this legislation must not be lost. The bill was irresponsibly rushed through Parliament, despite significant concern being raised by digital rights and civil society organisations regarding the significant increase in Australia's mass surveillance agenda. For this conversation to be meaningful, it must start with a complete repeal of the Toller Act and prioritise a focus on implementing an enforceable federal human rights framework. So there are organisations out there like EFA, um, like uh, Digital Rights Watch, which I am um, a part of, um, and lots of other organisations going out there, you know, fighting for the average citizen's digital rights and um, the right not to be surveilled. Um, So I think it's, it's really important to be aware that these sort of things are going on Um, in rather benign-looking, you know, Senate committee rooms. So there will be a further um, joint committee review and independent review of the legislation, um, and that'll be coming up, you know, that will be released because they're they're currently ongoing. But uh, just for people's interest, a polling undertaken by a whole alliance of human rights groups and technology companies in October last year when the laws were being debated in Parliament showed that 84.8% of Australians believed it was important that anything the government does to combat crime should not create weaknesses in Australia's online security systems. And I think it can be easy to think, oh, I've got nothing to hide and and, um, have those sort of conversations about privacy. But when we actually get really pointy about what we ask people and, and what their concerns are, I think that a lot of us have real concerns about the balance between, you know, freedoms and privacy and rights and uh, checks and balances in the law and anything done in the name of fighting terrorism. So I think it's it's important to know. And not to mention um, the risk of leaks, you know, actual issues with... Weakening encryption. Yeah, exactly. You know, that that is a huge factor just in its own right. Yeah. And, um, you know, know, it's, it's such a... Uh, such a common thread that we're seeing in the federal government is they're not necessarily listening to experts across the board on a number of pieces of legislation. So it's really important that this process is going on at the moment. And yes, federal government, we would like to see you listen to the experts. Yeah, that would be great. Whether they be, you know, human rights organisations mm. or technology companies exactly. who seem to have a lot of consensus in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Enough of the heaviness for the start of the show. We're about to have a ton of fun when Adam Christou joins us in a moment to talk about games. Before we get there, Joe, are we going to hear some music? Oh, after some messages from our sponsors. Excellent. Lloyd Cole returns to Melbourne this December. The former Commotions frontman will perform a career-spanning special concert featuring his classic hits and introducing his newest album, Guesswork. Lloyd Cole is joined by the Commotions guitarist Neil Clark for one night only at Hamer Hall on December 11. Bookings at artscentermelbourne.com.au Triple R Sponsors. Wine Folk is an Australian music festival supporting local artists with top-notch wine, beer and cider on Saturday, December 7 from 2pm at the Briars in Mount Martha. 
featuring the beautiful girls Ash Grunwald cooking on three burners, Sun Salute and a special headline guest. With wine by Red Hill and Susuro, local craft beers, food trucks and more. Tickets on sale at winefolk.com.au. Proud Triple R sponsors. And you are listening to Triple R. This is Bite Into It. We're about to hear from Fanfic, who is a New Zealand musician who's recently relocated to Melbourne. This is her song, Late Vanilla Boy. Seven fourteen on Triple R. You'll bite into it with Joe, Rowe and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. We've just been joined in studio by Adam Christou. You might know him as the intrepid games reviewer on Breakfasters. I just don't know how he finds the time to play so many games because he's always all on top of music as well and I'm getting great recommendations from him there. But welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for coming. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, being on our show. We invited you to do a bit of a wrap-up of some of your highlights of 2019. Um, what do you think would be a good way to, to you know, segment the amazingly huge games scene? How, how are you going to break it down for us? You know, it's really interesting that you just brought up time because I've been thinking about this a lot today about how, you know, there, there's been so many good releases this year that it felt like it was impossible to play all of them, let alone even contemplate all of them. And, yeah. and you mentioned music as well. Like with music every year, there seems to be more and more releases that are really good that you just don't have a t- enough time to listen to. Mm. We're in the full uh, scales of the attention economy now where yeah. <laughs> I'm battling with my streaming services, my desire to want to listen to music and to play all these games. Yeah. And they're all fighting for my attention. So um, I tried to group things based on genre and yeah. loosely on genre because i feel like genre is really malleable especially in music and in games so i made up some genres for some of the highlights of, of games that i played throughout the year oh made of... up genres are Excellent. my favorite yeah, I, I love a made up genre. <laughs> i feel like breaking and entering are the best at that lauren and simon really nail the the description of a genre of something they're exceptionally good at, yeah. at, at coming up with good fluffy words to kind of describe <laughs> things um, so I guess the first kind of genre that I've lumped a bunch of games into is the rise of the deck building and card game, which I feel like 2019 was the year that single player deck building card games
games really exploded. We've had like lots of multiplayer online card games for the last few years, kickstarted by things like Hearthstone, and then we had the Dota one, which I think no one was playing, called Artifact. Mm, um, Armello. Yeah, Armello as well. So we've had this kind of like kind of gameplay space in this deck building space for a while. But single player wise, a game that came out in 2017 in early access, but finally got released proper this year, Slay the Spire, kicked off January with what I think was one of the most addictive card building experiences that I've ever had. So it's a roguelike dungeon crawler um, where you're climbing up levels in a dungeon, but each room in that dungeon is a card based turn based battle fight. And you start... so, so for people who don't know what like a roguelike game is, yeah. could you unpack that a fraction? So a roguelike game is you sort of start off in square one whenever you start a roguelike game and you are trying to get to the end of a randomly generated dungeon or location or map. You pick up items and various things that help you along the way. But if you die, you start from square one again mm. and you have to start from the beginning. So it's it's a game genre that relies on you kind of learning the meta skills of that game to kind of understand what is the good strategies overall in a broad sense that you take from game to game. So it's, so like Mario would sound like it fits that description in terms of, you know, you restarted a level. Not so quite. so how would that's you more say of a it platform? That's right. So yeah. how would you say that like a roguelike sort of differs from yeah. that? All progress is removed. And usually the key thing with roguelikes is there's a lot of randomness as well. So yeah. you're getting a randomly generated map, you're getting a randomly generated enemies, placement might be different. So do they all have to feel a bit like Dungeons and Dragons on a computer or is there something that doesn't fit that that is a roguelike as well? Oh, look, um, there are some good sci-fi roguelikes that are right. out there at the moment okay. as well. So the genre has blown up in the last oh, five, six years and yeah. has become hyper-popular. Um, but I love this hybrid of, of card-based collecting and deck building married with roguelike mechanics. So Slay the Spire, you pick one of three classes, uh, and then from there uh, you're thrown into a random series of battles. When you finish every battle, you can randomly pick from three new cards to add to your deck. Uh -huh. So there's this big mechanic of like, what, what cards am I going to add? How's this going to change my run? What sort of deck am I actually building to get through all these bosses that are going to be coming up? And I, once you start playing it after a while, you know what challenges await you. So you might be like, I really need more AOE attacks, which is area of effect. Or you might need like <laughs> something that scales your damage I love gets you, deeper and bigger. You give us a sense of how immersed you are in the game by the fact that you pick up the lingo so readily. Oh, it's it's <laughs> so great. And this was a game that like after a, like five, six hours and I was like, I'm ready to go to YouTube and <laughs> And start researching and writing spreadsheets and figuring out my best deck. It's, it's definitely that sort of thing. So I, I really loved it. Um, another game in this genre that I thought was fantastic um, was SteamWorld Quest, Hand of Gilgamesh, which is a lot more of an easy, accessible version of one of these games. It's it's more like a role-playing turn-based game, but all of the turn-based battles are card-based uh, battles, similar to Slay the Spire. But instead... Um, you find cards from enemies and as you level up and so you start building decks for the various characters in your party so it still has a deck building element to it and it's very compelling and, and super fun as well uh in there too dicey dungeons uh which is a game which i feel like is a deck building game in disguise it's kind of hiding that it's a deck builder um <laughs> it's got this gorgeous artwork from uh an artist uh called marlo dobb who has kind of brought this almost like children's book sort of to life with this game. It's It's got this funny story pretense as well, which is that all the characters that you're playing this game are contestants who have sold their soul to Lady Luck in what is like the version of the afterlife in this game, which is set up like a reality TV show where you're pit against enemies <laughs> and you fight to beat Lady Luck and to win the odds of getting through the dungeon in Dicey Dungeons. I like the idea of there being a Lady Luck in a card-based game. Mm. Oh, she's great. And her design is fantastic. She's also a secret boss, which is really cool. Um, but the way that this game works is you start off with like, and I'll explain the warrior because every character in this game is very different. But the warrior um, has a couple of moves, but you have a dice. So you have a dice that's one to six and you roll it every turn and it can slot into various moves that you have set up on your board. And as you progress, you'll kind of unlock new moves. So you might have like a slash, which can only work with, you know, dice rolls below five. And it mm -hmm. does one to five damage based on what you roll. You might have something that's like blocks one to six damage, which might be a shield. And you start picking together all these pieces of equipment and collecting more dice so that you can set up a really good selection of uh, dice rolls and gear to build. So it's kind of like deck building, but it's very, very enjoyable. So, Ro, do you ever play any of these card-based games? No, but I'm absolutely going to start. This has been, um, you know, the biggest wish list <laughs> for me. It's, you know, it's something that I've not done. I've not put enough time in. I've, you know, I've always been one of those slightly casual games 
game as it dips in is really terrible at it and just just can't, won't. But I've, you know, I have found a few different types of games that I do a little bit better at and I'm actually really excited about these ones. I'm in two minds about this particular deck building card game genre and, you know, because this this idea of the skeuomorphic design, like basing things on physical objects in the real world like cards and die – kind of irritates me because I love the digital world freeing me up from the limitations of those sort of things. I know that they're so easy to understand and pick up and I I kind of get that but um and and he But the this, joy of this is yeah. that the digital world allows you to do things with cards that you can't do in a physical card game. Yeah. So you can give properties to cards like oh using this card will clone the card and now you have two. And it's like you can't just magically make two more cards in a real card deck. So I'm so glad to hear that people add a bit more imagination to yeah, it. There's than a that. lot of fun and a lot of stretching of these mechanics in there. But I do fun. like though that what sounds interesting about this is that the games don't require um, a sort of technical skill level, say, to get the secret moves out of that warrior character. Yeah. You're not actually having to hit a key combo in a certain quickness. It's actually a little bit of the luck of the draw, which I think can make for a more unpredictable and kind of fun experience. Yeah, these re- these games require a very different sense of games literacy than mm. I think like a lot of like, like if you look at an action adventure game and you're like, okay, here's a person in a 3D environment, they've got a gun, you can hide behind walls and stuff. You kind of need a certain level of games literacy to be like, okay, how do I use analog sticks, both a left and a right to control the camera? Yeah. And, to move and in the hand coordination. That sort of you know. stuff as well. Whereas when you're playing sort of deck building games or card based games, you can kind of go in with no games literacy because you're learning something like solitaire, but it's a lot more fun and weird and odd. Yeah. And, you know, I, that's what you're I love about this. You're making a great case for it. All so, right. Yeah, yeah. Favorite well, genre excited. of 2019, the single oh, player roguelike card builder. There's many in early access now. So I think next year we're going to have a whole bunch more get released that I'm going to be losing hours <laughs> to. Reading the controversy so early in the segment. All right. Narrative games. What have you got? for us Adam I thought the perfect bridge would be Disco Elysium which is a game that feels like it's taken all this tabletop elements uh, from tabletop role-playing games and thrown it into a computer game. Um, And it uses dice rolls as well. So great link from Dicey Dungeons. But it's by a company called Za'um. It's on PC only for now, but it's going to come to uh, PS4 and Xbox next year. And it is probably the most compelling single-player narrative-driven game that I played in a very long time. It draws its influence from games like Planescape Torment, and it says that that's the sort of game that it's in inspired on and you essentially play a washed up cop who has amnesia after a various serious night of drinking he has forgotten who he is he's forgotten his identities his memories the makeup of his personality he's lost it all Um, and he's also forgotten that he's in a small town to solve a crime and it's a pretty grisly one as well and so the first 10 minutes of this game are waking up drunk in your apartment trying to find your clothes Uh, battling a skill check to see if you can even get your tie, which is hanging it's off the top of It's also relatable so far. I, mean, oh, I love this so much already. It's great. You spend five oh minutes goodness. trying to find your shoes and then your quest log opens up saying, find your other shoe. So does it feel um, a little uh, film noir in style? Yeah, it's got those elements about it. It kind of feels like a China Meville book. That's, that's my biggest comparison. I mean, like it's set in a world where the socialists kind of like took over this country. They killed their king. They were in power. But then a hundred years later, socialism has been toppled by a conglomerate of other outside capitalist nations that have kind of in, come into this country and deposed the government. And so you're in this sort of like second, third world country that's recovering from a, a real governmental collapse and everything is in a weird kind of topsy-turvy state. This is a game that lets you role play your like political leanings. You can be a socialist. You can be a communist. You Gosh, can be. You've a, got to admire the depth of writing that must be in there. You can be a boring liberal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the worst part is okay. So I've forgotten to explain that the way that this game uses a party based mechanic. So a lot of ro- role playing games want you to have like a party of characters that join you on your quest. In this game, you have your detective partner who's rolling his eyes at you the entire time because you're a total <laughs> mess. His name's Kim, Kim Kitsurugi, and he's great. But then you are joined by a whole bunch of invisible companions and they are your personalities they are your skills and the traits that define your physicality your emotional maturity your intelligence your depth and they chime up in conversations with you they have internal monologues with you and join you so there was a moment in this game where where Mm -hmm. i was playing and my sense of inner strength and manliness chimed in and was like hey 
have you thought about fascism? That might be really good for you. Like real, real men get into fascism, like very tongue in cheek. And I was just That's listening awesome. to my body's physical grunting, suggesting fascism. And like, I could respond with, sure, why not? And, or absolutely not. I really don't want to go down here. And then it was like, but are you sure? Let's pick a minority group that you don't like. And it listed off a whole bunch, which is very tongue in cheek. I mean, like I decided in this game to be a communist who is into art and culture, which is very on the nose. Um, and I would get extra skill points for saying things that were very left-leaning in conversations. It's, it's, it's a comedy game, but it's full of a lot of depth. Um, oh, it's, it's fraught. It's I'm, got I'm some, a little bit like, oh. Would, it's got but some, the fact that you're giving it such a good review I, is... I can't explain it because there is gross stuff in this game. Yeah. Like There is a character yeah. in this game that is obsessed with phrenology and, and kind of gross kind of race kind of politics that is really foul but yeah. this game lets you kind of walk all over them and and kind of re- basically the game is aware that this person is a horrible joke and that their ideology is terrible but it's still there that you have to interact with it in this world wow. and so there are elements of this game that make me uncomfortable but it's also just one of the most compelling narrative games i've ever played like it's a real highlight for me probably one of my biggest of the year amazing um, wow. For those who've just joined us, we are in mid-conversation with Adam Christou, uh, Breakfast's game reviewer, about his most notable games for the year. What are we going to hear next, Adam? I thought I'd bring up this game. It's one that I have yet to finish. I've only put a couple, a bit of time into it, but I thought it was probably the most bite-into-it game that I could <laughs> think of. And it's a game called Eliza by a company called Zaktronics. And it's out now on PC and Mac and Switch. And it's a visual novel where you play a young woman called Evelyn. Um, And she has left her job in a big tech startup company and now works in the gig economy of Seattle in the not-too-distant future. Her job is that she is the human proxy for an AI algorithm-based program called Eliza, which is a virtual counselling service. Yeah, she can totally volunteer on this show. Yeah, so what Evelyn does in this world is she reads off a script in counselling sessions that this AI generates based on what people are telling her in a counselling session. And so you take on the role of Eliza in these counselling sessions and you kind of got to stay on script with what Eliza wants you to say and the advice that it offers people but then there are options here and there to kind of go off script and change the narrative of this story and it's a very interesting look at yeah the gig economy crunch working conditions in big tech and and what it does to people in those spaces have they said of eliza as a nod to the early um chatbot it is Uh, which is fantastic It's, fantastic. it's very much a homage to that yeah I think you've nailed your audience here, Adam. We're on board with that one. We want to, we want to try it. What can we play that on? Oh, that is on PC, Mac, and Switch. Oh, and cool. Maybe it's coming to a few other platforms, but it's very cool. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what have you got for us in the action-adventure area? Okay. Um, so now we're getting to the world of things that require a little bit more games literacy. But um, I really wanted to talk about Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, which came in the first half of, of 2019 and has stayed with me as... One of the most difficult games I've ever beaten, but one of the most satisfying games to have ever toppled. Um, And I I think this game does open a lot of conversations about accessibility and difficulty and how demanding its combat is and how that will actually put up barriers for people who just literally cannot respond fast enough to play it. And I think it's a real shame that this game kind of locks out people from experiencing it fully. But there is something really satisfying about knowing that there is no difficulty slider, that you just have to meet this game where it wants you to meet it. And you either beat it or you give up. Um, And it has this... So it's basically set in feudal Japan um, during kind of the warring Sengoku period of Japan as well. So just like lots of different um, nation states and feudal empires infighting with each other. You play a ninja, a shinobi named Sekiro, uh, the one-armed wolf. Um, And you kind of go through this very sprawling big world um, that has lots of pathways and interconnecting parts to it as you try to find uh, your charge that you're in guard of protecting and help them with a big personal quest and mystery. Um, They're being kidnapped and they're put at the top of a tower. So with that sort of difficulty level, are there lots of save points or can you just sort of save any time? Like how does it mitigate that a little bit? So this comes from the developers of Dark Souls um, and it uses the same sort of bonfire mechanic that they started in that series with uh, Demon's Souls. So essentially throughout this world, there are a whole bunch of meditation statues placed about. You can rest at one of those statues and you can recover your health. You have limited uh, healing charges that you can use before rests. So you might have like 
five or six charges to heal yourself and then you've got to find a statue rest but the downside is whenever you rest all the enemies in an area respawn so um, all of the challenges come back and it's about like learning an area learning the enemies overcoming them and minimizing the amount of healing charges that you have to use because you'll come up against a boss and you want to conserve oh, things i love how much that feels like a martial arts film where it's just like you know you do the meditation you prepare yourself physically and then you're like i must charge through this area it's a mission and this game also made sword combat feel really deadly and really decisive oh, like it uses a parry mechanic as its core focus of how you fight in this game. So um, you press a button to parry enemy attacks as they come at you. You have to have very good timing at the right time as they're about to hit you to parry properly. Oh, come on. We've been doing this since Street Fighter. And <laughs> block, block. It very much is like that. And you've got, to, you've got to time it perfectly. It's a little bit like a rhythm game in ways. Oh, You'll be like great. counting the rhythms of certain enemies. Like oh. when you get up to certain enemies later on in the game, you, you'll know that they'll go like one, two, one, two, three, four. And you've got to be ready to like parry, 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 parry. Because they have what is called like a, a stance gauge, um, which kind of fills up over time as you keep parrying them and you can break their stance and then they'll be open for a weakness, a weak attack where you can basically kill them in one hit. So it's a game of parrying people until they break and then you can kind of take them out. And it makes Love for it. really satisfying kind of back and forth table tennis type salvos between swords. It's very, very fun. Sold. So what was that again? Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Excellent. Um, and it's on it, the list. And the other game that I wanted to talk about, which is one I talked about on breakfast this morning, because it actually draws a lot from Sekiro. And they were in development at the same time, so I think it was unintentional. Um, but it's Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which takes a lot of inspiration from um, the environmental style of Dark Souls and Sekiro, of those meditation points of exploring a world that's very difficult. It uses lightsabers in the exact same way that um, Sekiro well, uses the ninja sword. That, we know that George Lucas borrowed so heavily from Japanese culture to you know, build that Star Wars universe. So that's really interesting to see these sort of reflections. And It's great. Again. Yeah. I mean, like I've been waiting for a Star Wars game to make lightsaber combat feel oh. this fun and <laughs> when you have to like when you're fighting up against a sith lord and they're like coming at you and you have to parry every single attack perfectly block and dodge at the right time or you got die in a couple of hits it's very good and it has a great story as well it's focused on the idea of the the empire and it's fascistic fascism God, that's a word that's hard to say sometimes. Uh, the, you know, the price of what fascism looks like on on people who have survived genocide or have, have lived under that rule. And it focuses a lot about Order 66, which was that moment in Star Wars canon. Um, load up Wikipedia if you want to follow <laughs> it home. Which is essentially where Emperor Palpatine ordered that all the Jedi should be exterminated. And so this follows two people who have survived Order 66 and survive, and how they've dealt with trauma, genocide, losing their people. And almost every other character in this game is dealing with loss on a grand level like that as well. So it's a big parable about loss and about genocide. It's, it's a very good game. And I feel like that universe is almost at its best when it is dealing with, you know, disenfranchised people and, and diasporas and, and yeah. those sort of things. And yeah. it actually asks the question of, were, should we bring back the Jedi are they a good thing at all? Is space cops that have grand authority over the universe and order a good thing? Which I think is something that Star Wars, when it's at its best, is questioning whether or not the Jedi mm. are actually something that's valuable in the world. Mm. Awesome. Could there possibly be more genres? There are. I, I feel like <laughs> I feel like a lot of games this year, I, I kind of lumped around the idea of exploration. And and Jedi Fallen Order is a game that really wants you to explore and explore its world, but it's also a very combat-focused game. And I think some of the exploration-based games that I've really enjoyed this year have had no combat in them or have had minimal combat. And the real highlight for me, and probably one of my other favorite games of the year, is The Outer Wilds. And that comes from a small team called Mobius, um, and it's out on Annapurna Interactive, and it's on Xbox, PS4, and the Epic Games Store. And this is a game that started off as a PhD thesis and over the period of seven years got turned into this beautiful, incredible game. And it feels like the first big response to Breath of the Wild, which was the Legend of Zelda game from 2016 that really captured that lightning in a bottle feeling of exploration and infinite possibility. And the Outer Wilds puts you in the, the body of a young alien on a planet called Timberhearth. And it's your first day going out to explore your solar system. And so you walk around your little village, you meet a whole bunch of people and they're like, oh yeah, you're going to blast off. It's great. <laughs> and so 
you get into your spacecraft and it is awkward to control. It's very fun to do manual landings and takeoffs on this thing. And you can land on all the celestial bodies in your solar system. So there's the moon, there's a couple of other interesting planets, um, and you'll meet other explorers. You'll unpack an, a huge ancient alien mystery across this whole solar system just by finding ruins, solving puzzles, and reading lots of left-behind stories. You'll go on a hunt for something called the quantum moon later on in the game, which requires a lot of thinking. Um, but the most weird and wonderful part of this game is about 20 minutes into playing, the sun goes supernova in your solar system and everything ends. And then you wake up back at the beginning and you realize you're in a Groundhog Day time loop. Oh, and oh, so wow. so many of my favorite things in this. Yeah. <laughs> and if that already like, oh. isn't a mysterious hook that makes you want to explore this whole solar system to figure out how to break that loop and, or how to get out of it, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, but this game is the sort of game where you'll look onto the horizon and be like, what's that hill over there? Or what's that mountain there? Or what's that rock in the distance? Or what's that planet or that comet over there? Can I fly to it? Can I explore it? What might, might be there? Will it be exciting? The answer is it always will be. And it's so much fun working out how these worlds work. Um, because that is the real puzzle of this game. And such an art in that sort of game design in that you, the way you're expressing this, you, you felt like that that curiosity was satisfied at every turn oh, so hard to do without a doubt and and this game has one of the best endings for a game that i've ever experienced like one of, just like i can't spoil it but narratively um such a satisfying emotional ending that will stay with me for years i hope it influences like dozens of games into the future it's a real highlight Super exciting, and I'm I'm now very very intrigued about the old uh, PhD thesis yeah. that started it all. And I saw in the notes that you gave us earlier that you said this is better than Mist. Yeah, that's high praise. Like it feels like Mist as well. Like it's nice. the sort of thing where it's like I'm traveling through a weird world and I can see all these puzzles, but I don't know how they come together. How might they work? And the real fun is like, it's all about the environment and time passing. And that's how you solve a lot of puzzles in this game. And it loops well into the idea of the time loop too. Everything is a clockwork puzzle. It's, it's really ingenious. Have you got anything else in your exploration genre? This is loosely exploration. Maybe it's more a narrative novel, but like, or, or you know, an interactive novel game. But Hypnospace Outlaw, which came out at the beginning of the year as well on PC and Steam by an uh, independent developer called Jay Tholen, um, is amazing. And in it, you explore the internet of 1999 in an alternate reality been where <laughs> we've all Lived been there. there. <laughs> I can hear the dialogue yeah. in my ear as we speak. Oh, it's tremendous. In this version of 1999 internet, everyone is on something called hypnospace, which you access in your sleep. You put on a headband oh. and you dream the internet. Oh, I love it. Um, and Horrifying. The, maj <laughs> the majority of this game takes place surfing hypnospace websites. And you are a hypnospace moderator and you are looking for oh. bad content, people breaking oh. rules. These pages look like GeoCities. They've got looping, like, they've got MIDI files. I'm that all three of us have been mod mods on online forums. We're, that, yes, yes. we're probably like, all getting yes. the horrors at the moment. It just moment. sounds like work. I'm Do just... you remember Web Rings? Because this game yes. does. I sure do. I was back. in some. I want to know if MySpace is in there. <laughs> There is a version of something, because it's too early for MySpace, but oh. they've definitely got something like that in there. They have got, like, internet forums that are made up. There Did is they have like the Kiss FM chat? That was the original dance music radio station, Kiss. They had this chat that was just so vibrant in Melbourne. It was amazing. They have this section, which is just for kids. Oh. It's like the kids' zone, where they've yes. all made their own websites, and it's full of lyrics, and it's full of teenage... There's this one Aww. kid who's like, I've got a girlfriend, and she's the best, but then you can, like, go to the girlfriend's page, and because you're a moderator, you can see who's created the page. He's created his girlfriend's page. She doesn't exist. Oh, All that sort it. of stuff is in this world. Oh, that's hilarious. If you've missed the under construction animated GIF images oh. of the 90s internet, it's all in here. Oh, we have it's, to check this out. So Hypnospace Outlaw. It's wonderful. If you, you want to explore the old internet. Very yeah. nice. It's very, very good great. And, PC and, and a good mystery as well, because at the end you start unpacking a narrative story behind this website and its creators. And it's, it's great. I'm going to call out that we are partway through a discussion with uh, Adam Christou on his game highlights for the year. Before we get to the the final couple, um, do we want to hear a couple of messages? We are. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. 
I was bite into it with Joe Rowe and Vanessa. That song was ridiculously cute. Uh, <laughs> we have just been regaled by Adam Christou, games reviewer, with some of his highlight games for the year. If you've missed it, go back and hit it on demand because there's lots of ideas that will take you through the summer holidays. Um, Adam, we hadn't quite let you finish there. Where were you up to? We're going to talk about some Australian games. We Yay! should talk about some, th- some things made in this country yes, because you. we are in like an amazing hub for game creation, which is Melbourne and Australia as a whole. Um, so I, I picked out two particular Australian releases from this year that I really enjoyed. Um, the first one I think is one that everyone has been thinking about a lot um, and has kind of blown up in mainstream public consciousness, which is a thing that doesn't very happen happen that often with Australian games or independent games of this level. No. And that's Untitled Goose Game Honk. by House House. Um, <laughs> this game is great. I think it's maybe more of a puzzle game than it lets on, but... Essentially, the hook is you're a terrible goose in a small little village in what feels like, you know, a country town in, in, in England. Maybe it's a town full of Brexiters. Who knows? It, <laughs> it's got that bit of that energy about it. Um, and Okay, boomer energy. A little bit. Everyone's yeah. like doing the gardening, reading their actual physical paper, all that sort of owning stuff. Owning homes. Oh. Yeah, owning homes, oh, uh, planting <laughs> things, going to the pub. And, and essentially, you're a goose and you solve problems such as, how can I make this person throw me over the fence? Or um, can I steal all of the clothes that are on their clothesline and dump them in the neighbor's uh, pond? Uh, or, or, or other good questions, which is like, how can I get into the pub that's being guarded by this man who won't let me in so that I can steal a pint glass and then walk it out of the pub and then drop it into the lake nearby because that seems really like something I want to do. So really they're not even trying. Like a goose is just a loose proxy for an Aussie. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like you were in there to basically cause mischief. It's a mischief maker simulator. Oh, it's so good. it's also a stealth puzzle game. And I feel like a lot of the time when you play stealth-based games or you're playing games that want you to kind of sneak past things or, or kind of create chaos in an environment... You're doing it under very violent circumstances. So I think of like the the sandbox style of Grand Theft Auto games. Or Assassin's Creed. Or Assassin's Creed is like another good example. The Hitman games stick out the most in this sense where they are like puzzle boxes of like huge big environments. And it's like, you could knock out this tattoo artist over there, take his identity, sneak up to your target that you're going to assassinate, pretend to put a tattoo on him, but the tattoo is actually poisonous. He's dead. Or you could climb this building over there, get out a sniper rifle and shoot it. And so it's nice that instead of that sort of like veneer of violence, instead you're a goose and you're like, but maybe I can crawl behind this bush, wait carefully, honk at this person so they run away. Then I can sneak past this person over there, climb into that box. No one will see me in that box. Delivery person's going to pick up that box that I'm in with my goosey good times. Walk me past the man who's guarding the pub. Drop me to the back in the kitchen so I can terrorize the chef for a little bit. Then I can sneak around and get that pint glass. Yeah, I think the lateral thinking that you're talking about is really core to this game. You know, the sense of humor as well. But but yeah. that, that surprise and delight. Yeah, yeah like uh, there's been a lot of conversation about like the, the it's giving you ownership to be a jerk. But I think it's it's more about like that idea of like public indecency and, and and in a way I think it's almost like you can kind of compare it to public protest. I know it sounds very silly and I'm kind of being like really reachy here, but I like the idea as of, of the goose of being something as like it's it's throwing the thumb up at, at like yeah public politeness in public spaces. Mm. It's great. Any other Australian highlights? Um, a, a really quick one um, by a, a developer called Ian McClarty, which is called Drump Jump Grid. Um, and this is like a hyper fast puzzle game. It's a reflex puzzler um, where there's like a 3D grid or a 2D grid in, in space and you have to navigate through the grid by bouncing from point to point on the grid to collect dots. And you have to do that while dodging all these high psychedelic geometric shapes that come flying at you from the background and the foreground. And it's just a really fast action puzzle that's really kinetic, has great music and a great art design. And it's it's fun to see something that really wants you to kind of build muscle memory and to kind of twitch and move through it. So did you coin the expression reflex puzzler? No. That's it was, very good. It was on their press release. And ah. I, you know what? Sometimes someone else just decides what their game should be called really well. And so all, all props <laughs> to Ian McClarty who worked out the best way to describe their game. Amazing. If you could only leave us with one more. Guilty pleasure. Yeah, what would you leave us with? I spent 300 hours in Fire Emblem Three Houses earlier this year. I played this game four times. And this is a game that has branching narratives that you can finish it four times with four different stories. But the long and short of it is think um, kind of grand strategy like chess where you're placing units in battle 
and you're trying to defeat enemy armies, except those units are students at a college, you are their teacher. It is set in medieval times. The college is run by a church that might be a Catholic church that's run by evil dragons. Who knows? <laughs> Japan. Um, it's very anime. And also you have to forge friendship bonds and, wow, and this sounds like train your students. And so it, it is amazing. It is like a it's a bit visual novel because you're building the relationship between all your students and kind of connecting them and making them friends with each other. But it's also like a grand game of chess where your students also ride horses into battle and shoot magic spells. Plus a computer games lecturer's wet dream. It's great. Um, <laughs> and it has a really compelling story about like feudal systems, about power, about like on one particular route in this game, if you choose the Golden Deer House, you kind of fight against the idea of racism and, and closed borders in society and breaking down those barriers for a more open, just world. It's good. Adam, it has been sensational getting your game highlights. Uh, we could talk about them for the entire hour and, and unfortunately we cannot because there's some vital content we have to cover before then. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Will you stick around for the rest of the show? Yeah, why not? Ace, that's fantastic. All right, in a major shift up in tone, we wanted to chat a little bit about facial recognition. Yeah, it's heating up fast. The big issue at the moment is that consent, when um, co companies and governments are capturing these facial scans for facial recognition, this consent is really disappearing fast. So um, the first cab off the rank is Ring, which is Amazon's surveillance camera division. So this is really, it's a simple little product. It's basically internet connected doorbell cameras. Um, but what they're doing is they plan to use facial recognition software and their growing network of these home security cameras to create AI-enabled watch lists. So this was reported in The Intercept um, after they obtained some leaked internal documents um, and it was reported that the system would automatically alert a ring order owner sorry, when an individual who was deemed suspicious was captured in their camera's frame, so which is described as a suspicious activity prompt. The issue on this, this front is who has access to these neighbourhood watch lists. Um, on the one hand, if someone's pinching your parcels off your front doorstep or whacking your letterbox with a you know baseball bat for, <laughs> for giggles... Um, Absolutely, it makes sense to have these great app-enabled little um, little cameras and you can go, oh, woof, that's not good enough, I'm going to send this off to the local police. But um, the internal documents from Amazon suggest that law enforcement would have pretty much automatic access along with the users of Ring's Neighbours app, which um, allows neighbours to basically chat, share images and, and all of the things with people nearby. So aside from the fact that there's some pretty basic privacy concerns, is mainly around the risk of innocent people being popped on these watch lists that operate with no due process and no mechanism to correct any errors. So um, Amazon are publicly denying that this is a thing, but their internal documents um, that were leaked tell a really different story. And moving through, you know, while we're speaking about facial recognition, it was announced this week, effective Monday, Chinese consumers who are registering new phone numbers or purchasing SIM cards have to get their faces scanned under a new rule. So um, this is a Chinese government initiative. They already... Um, tie people's IDs in China to their SIM cards or their phone numbers, this is obviously a really, really massive thing. High-quality scans, and it's essentially mandatory now. Yeah, look, to bring the relevance of this up to um, to people in Melbourne and, and Perth, uh, both city councils have been using a lot of CCTV, but um, recently a Victoria police, like in August, a spokesperson told The Australian that um, the force utilises facial recognition technology for investigative and intelligence gathering purposes. Um, and they have 138 networked surveillance cameras in the city of Melbourne alone. But what we don't have is any uh, constraints on how these things are going to be used and linked into different databases. And that's, that's a real gap. I've said it before on here, but um, if, you know, it doesn't look like this sort of thing's going to go away. And after reading um, Gibson's Zero History, if it's not going to go away, it's kind of making me look forward to Dazzle Ships as face makeup as an aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, the <laughs> cyberpunk that you've been waiting for. Look, well worth reading in a related article to what Ro just told us about with the facial recognition technology um, in those sorts of Amazon products um, and Ring products. The New York Times just released an article about China using DNA to map faces with help from the West. And it talked about um, the 
the uh, harassment of ethnic Uyghur populations, um, which are predominantly Muslim minority groups, um, spread across uh, rural parts of China. Uh, And they talked about forcibly taking DNA from people and actually trying to use a relatively new type of technology which is called uh, DNA phenotyping. So it's where you take DNA and then you try and create a portrait of a person based on that. Now, it's still in a fledgling sort of state at this point, um, but it can already produce rough pictures good enough to perhaps narrow a manhunt if you're a character in The Fugitive or um, eliminate suspects. So where you've got some broad characteristics that you know, make some things possible to identify. So there's massive concern that this could intensify racial profiling and um, there's also concern about uh, whether people have had their DNA taken um, with permission and then some people are saying that, well, their DNA has been taken without permission and that people are being put in camps based on some of this sort of stuff. The fact that this technology is in early stages um being used to analyse genes for traits like skin colour, eye colour and ancestry is um, – it's it's a really problematic area. Like the, the scope for misuse is just huge. And once again, we're just not keeping up in terms of um, protections for people in these spaces. So really worth going and reading that article in the New York Times. Um, use up one of your, you know, five free articles or something and, and have a look at that. There's There's a lot of great journalism in this space at the moment and well worth keeping up with what's happening. Joe, do we uh, – oh, we possibly want to hear um, uh, a, yeah, look, a message? Yeah. The, I, don't, I forgot what to call it. <laughs> we've been given a lovely note from the Breakfasters. It's their end-of-year broadcast, and it's live at the Corner Hotel this oh, next Friday, sorry, Friday, December the 13th from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. So the Breakfasters will be celebrating the end of this year with a – and it's at the Corner Hotel, sorry, on the rooftop. Um, there'll be live music from Jess Ribeiro and Matthew Richo Richardson, Kate McLennan, Kate McCartney. That'd be great. And stacks of the regular Breakfasters segment guests dropping by. Are you dropping by? Nice. Yeah, yeah, we'll both be yeah, there. Both Adam of you and there. I, yeah, yeah, both there. And free pastries and free coffee thanks to Wide Open Road. So everyone's invited and head on down. And again, that's next Friday the th- 13th at 6am to 9am. Beautiful. Thanks, Joe. Hey, uh, there was a brilliant bit of weird news of the week because we didn't want to leave you with any downers this week, not after we've had all that fun with games. And uh, there was an article that came out in The Independent in the UK. It was in their science space and it talked about failing 15% of the time is the best way to learn. So... I just thought this is such a catchy title. I've got to know about this. Um, I'm always trying to teach myself new things and hopefully that's something that we all have a little bit of time to do over the holidays (laughs) as well as just, you know, hanging loose and and having fun. Um, But scientists from the University of Arizona have have called what they uh, describe as the Goldilocks zone um, with data suggesting that when you fail 15% of the time, you're actually learning the fastest isn't that incredible? I um, love that idea. So to, I feel to, better already. Yeah, so to discover <laughs> this, they created a machine learning um, series of experiments where they taught computers simple tasks like categorising patterns or arranging numbers and they learnt fastest when they got 85% of the answers correct because I guess you're always learning while you make mistakes and you're learning from them. So, hey, I'll leave you with that encouraging news. We've been biting into it. We've got one show left for the year, so do tune in next Wednesday to catch us. Thanks to our guest, Adam Christou, our podcaster, Yazan Saif, and our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. It's been brilliant being with you, Joe Rowena. Have a great night, everybody out there. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.